This evening we're going to look at the law and grace of God. Law and grace of God. About 12 years ago, maybe more than that, I attended a a debate where a Christian spoke to a Muslim on the subject of Sharia law. The question was asked, should the UK adopt Sharia law? I very soon found myself squirming in my seat as the Christian, speaking to the Muslim, rejected Sharia law, but his grounds for rejecting Sharia law were that we are under grace and not under the law. What that Christian demonstrated was that he did not understand law and grace. Only a couple of weeks ago, I was reminded of the confusion that exists amongst many Christians, including preachers and theologians, on the subject of law and grace. This evening we'll be looking at God's law and we'll be referencing various Bible passages. You can either turn the pages with me or you can just listen very carefully. Much of what I'm going to say takes us back to basics, but that's not always a bad thing to do. I think we need to keep going back to the basics, not staying on the basics. We need to advance, but we do forget, I most certainly forget, we need to keep going back to the basics as well as moving on. First of all, most of you, most of you will know what happened in the Garden of Eden. How the Lord gave Adam a commandment. The Lord said to Adam, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That amounts to a commandment, doesn't it, that God gave to Adam. There were no pretty pleases there. God told Adam straight, you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What followed was disobedience, in other words, sin and death. But not just for Adam and Eve, for everybody. On that fateful day in Eden, the floodgates were opened like a tsunami. Sin and death have reached everyone. Everyone comes into the world as a natural born sinner. With Adam's sin. His sin is laid to the account of all his prosperity. As it is written in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Also, there's Psalm 55 verse 5, where the psalmist David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin did my mother conceive me. And what the psalmist said about himself applies equally to all of us. We all come into the world as cute little sinners. And that is because we all come into the world as sons and daughters of Adam. Not only are we all natural born sinners because of Adam, 
but also we do a very, very good job of sinning by ourselves in our own right, don't we? And we demonstrate that we really are just as rebellious as our first parents. I don't imagine for one moment that I would have been any more obedient than Adam had it have been me in the Garden of Eden. Note that we are all guilty of breaking God's laws, even those people who have never seen a Bible nor heard anything about God's law. They are all guilty. We are all guilty. And that includes people who live in far-flung, primitive lands. They still exist, don't they? Even those people are guilty of breaking God's laws. People who have never, ever been reached with the, uh, by missionaries, Christian missionaries, they've never heard the gospel message, they are all guilty of breaking God's laws. And that includes all who lived long before God even gave his law to Moses and to Israel at Mount Sinai. However long that period of time was, from Adam through to God giving his laws at Mount Sinai to the Israelites, everyone in that period of time was guilty of breaking God's laws. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 2 and I'm going to read verse 12 through to 15 and I'll explain things to you and you'll hopefully be able to see how it is that everybody is guilty of breaking God's laws whether they've heard uh, the gospel, whether they've seen a Bible or not. Romans chapter 2. Well, before we even start with Romans chapter 2, let me just tell you, in Romans chapter 1, we're told by the Apostle Paul that man is without excuse. Man who says there's no God, he's without excuse because God has made himself known. He's made his power known by the things he's created. That's in chapter 1. We're without excuse If we worship the creature instead of the creator, we are without excuse. God has made himself known to everybody in uh, the things that have been created. But then, with that in mind, we all know that there is a God. Even if people say there is no God, uh, they are fools, according to the Bible. And we move on to chapter 2, which I wanted to show you. Um, Chapter 2, verse 12 through to 15. For as many who have, sorry, for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. So in verse 12 there, as many as sinned without law shall also perish without the law. That would apply to Gentiles who have never seen the law. They will still perish nevertheless. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law 
written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So in those words there, the Apostle Paul explains that the work of God's law, something of God's law, has been written into the hearts of everybody. If you ever wonder why it is that your conscience accuses you, or excuses you, why you've got that conscience, it's because God has written his law, the work of his law, into your heart. doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter where you are, throughout the whole of history, God has written the work of his law into men's hearts. Again, man is without excuse. And we can see that to be the case. For example, in Acts chapter 28, I was talking about primitive lands uh, not long ago. Look at Acts 28. The Apostle Paul was shipwrecked. And let's see what happens. Acts chapter 28 verses 1 through to 4. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita or Malta. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness. For they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he have escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. Where do they get that from? No doubt he's a murderer. And they even have that sense of justice. He's a murderer. And that's why that uh, that snake has attached itself. That serpent has uh, attached itself to Paul. He's being punished because he's a murderer. They got it wrong, of course. They were completely wrong there. But they, they where do they get it from? Murder. And where does anyone get it from? You don't have to go to law school. You don't have to be taught the law to know right from wrong, good from evil. Although we may suppress these things, God has written the work of his law into our hearts. Every one of us. In a documentary that I watched very recently, an elder in a very primitive tribe, a present-day tribe in Africa was called upon to judge when a man alleged that he'd been beaten. Quite probably, none of the people had ever been shown God's law, nor any other law for that matter. Nevertheless, they knew that it was wrong to be beaten like that, and they called on the elder to judge in that case. These are people who... Uh, without the law, but nevertheless, God has written the work of his law on their hearts. 
We all instinctively, as I say, know good from evil. We have all got that sense of justice. We all want to see criminals punished, don't we? And do we not see how right it is that when we read in the Bible, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that sense of justice that we all have, even though we are all self-righteous and hell-deserving sinners. Nevertheless, we know um, that people ought to be punished when they do things wrong. Can you see how it is that absolutely no one will be able to legitimately claim ignorance concerning God's law when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again in judgment at the end of the world? And that is because we all have the work of God's law written in our hearts. However, even though Jesus will come in judgment at the end of the age, the good news is that 2,000 years ago, he came into the world to save self-righteous and hell-deserving sinners. In life, only Jesus fulfilled the demands of God's law, and he did so for all who trust in him. Just as we all come into the world with Adam's sin, credited to our account, those who trust in Jesus have his sinless perfection, credited to their account. As for all their sins, they were laid upon the Lord Jesus at the cross. (coughs) Those people are the recipients of the grace of God, the undeserved favour of God, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming back to that debate with the Christian who rejected Sharia law on the grounds that we are under grace, as a Christ rejecter, that Muslim was most certainly not under grace. And if he left the world without having received the incarnate Son of God as his Saviour from sin, God's law, which he had broken throughout his life, would most certainly condemn him to hell. Every one of us must must give an account to God And if you have not repented and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the wages of your sin is death, physically and spiritually, forevermore. There really will be no one who will be able to stand before the judgment throne of Christ and say, well, I didn't know. No one told me. I didn't know I was a sinner. We all have God's law the work of God's law written on our hearts. Every one of us. You need to understand that God does not allow lawbreakers into heaven. Access to the holiest is reserved for those who have been washed from their sins in the blood of Jesus and who have been clothed in his righteousness. Only those people are accepted by a holy and righteous God. Those who have received Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. As for the rest, as I've said already several times, they are all guilty anyway. All guilty of sin. There will be no one who will be able to stamp their feet at the judgment and say it's not fair. Because they're guilty. Guilty sinners. But 
there's people such as in here now who do hear the gospel message and who respond to the gospel command to receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Not everyone does. But you are an example in here of people who do hear the gospel message. I said earlier that there is confusion among Christians with regards to their relationship with God's law. That Christian uh, who was in the debate, clearly he was confused about things. When it comes to the Old Testament laws concerning animal sacrifices, they are no longer to be observed by Christians. Animal sacrifices. Those laws are obsolete, having been fulfilled by Jesus. It wouldn't make sense to continue to sacrifice animals when the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who laid down his life at the cross. Turning to Hebrews chapter 10. That speaks of the sacrificial laws as being a shadow of good things to come. It says in verse 1, chapter 10, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore when he cometh into the world he saith sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. But a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he came into the world and he fulfilled the law with regard to blood sacrifices when he offered himself at the cross. Also, there used to be a wall of partition that separated Jews from Gentiles in the temple in Jerusalem. Quite literally, the Jews, the Gentiles, were separated in the temple. Likewise, there were numerous laws that God gave to the Jews as his chosen nation of people, and those laws can be seen to have been a wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles. However, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his sacrificial death on the cross, broke down that wall of partition, and those laws have gone as well. 
as the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish believer in Jesus, said to Gentile believers in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through to 16, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So that middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile has gone, been nailed to the cross. All the laws that separated Jews from Gentiles, new laws that were, um, did, which were for the Jews as a nation, civil laws for the Jews, they've gone. So it's fair to say that if you're a Christian, not all of God's laws are to be observed. You don't, you don't observe the sacrificial laws and you don't observe all those laws that pertained to Israel of old. Even so, there is much that is still to be observed. You still have the moral law, the work of which has been written in your heart by God. Back to Romans chapter 2. It's the moral law that's written into men's hearts. The works of that law is written into hearts. Laws that say, thou shalt not murder. The moral law. That hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't been abolished. The Ten Commandments are as valid now as they ever were. That same law was also written by the finger of God onto tablets of stone at Mount Sinai and reproduced in our Bibles in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. You can read the Ten Commandments. That law is far from redundant. In fact, if you're a Christian, then God's moral law, and not just the work of it, not just the work of it, has been written in your heart and mind in full measure. Just look at the promise that was given to the Jews in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. Uh, I read it to you earlier on concerning the new covenant that the Lord Jesus Christ would be mediator and guarantor of. That promise of God in prophecy where his laws would be written in hearts and minds. Don't imagine for one moment that the promise was just for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If you, When you look at that, uh, I can remember now some years ago, someone insisting to me, a Christian insisting that this is not relevant to Christians. Uh, I'm turning to it again, although we looked at it earlier. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not really us, is it? 
not Gentiles there, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not us, is it? It's clearly for the Israelites there, which my covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Don't imagine for one moment that that promise was just for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah. That same promise is reproduced in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, in a passage that speaks of gaining access to heaven by the blood of Jesus and through his flesh. As such, it is a promise that applies to all who are trusting in Jesus for their acceptance by God. Jews, most certainly, but also Gentiles. Therefore, if you are under grace, having trusted in Jesus as your saviour from sin, God has written his moral law in your heart and in your mind. As such, dear Christian, you of all people ought to have a heightened understanding of God's law and a greater desire to keep it more so than anyone else. Everyone else, they've got the works of God, the work of God's law written in their hearts, but still they wave their fist towards heaven and they say, let us break their bands asunder and cast their way, cast away their cords from us. And they actively rebel against God. But you, if you are a Christian and you have, and God has written his laws into your heart and into your mind, it's very different. You have an, uh, your understanding of God's law should be far greater than it ever was before. And there should be a far greater desire from you than from anyone else to keep God's laws. Not to trash it and say it, it's not relevant to me because I'm under grace. You, you have the enabling power of the indwelling Holy Spirit for you to be obedient to those laws that have been written in your heart and in your mind. Laws which are all about loving God with your whole being and loving your neighbour as yourself. The Ten Commandments can be summarised into two great commandments. To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself. How would they be obsolete, those laws, for a Christian? Why would anyone want them to be obsolete? Surely the same law that convicted you of your sin when you were, when you first became a Christian continues to be at work in you even now. Convicting you anew each day and casting you again and again upon the mercy and the grace of God as you confess your sins and as you thank God for his grace towards you through Jesus Christ his son.
This is something that other people don't do. But this is something that you most certainly do do if you are a Christian. The situation for you now is that even though the law of God, the moral law that is, can no longer condemn you to hell, it is nevertheless of tremendous use to you as a rule of life. And for that you ought to be thankful to God. As it is written in the Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate, Christians, to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and unallayed rigour thereof. That's from the Baptist Confession of Faith there. It's a rule of life for us and for that we thank God. Therefore, thank God for his undeserved favour, his grace, that he has showered upon you. But don't dismiss his law simply because you are under grace. I can't help thinking that Christians who do that uh, reveal a rebellious streak in them that is on a par with the the ungodly rulers in Psalm 2. The ones who do say, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. How can a Christian be any different to that if they have a disregard for God's laws? What makes them any different to the ungodly rulers of the world and ungodly people generally? That is not a healthy condition for a Christian to be in, one whereby he has no regard and no love for God's law. When you think of the laws that have been enacted by lawmakers in our country, in our land here, we have a mixture of good and bad laws, don't we? The laws that are passed at Tinwald, some good, some bad. For example, we have evil laws such as the one that permits pre-born babies to be decapitated, to be broken into little pieces before being sucked out of what ought to be the safe haven of their mother's wombs. That's law in this land. Also we have laws that permit babies to be killed in wombs, then born into toilets and flushed into sewers as a result of their mothers taking drugs that are freely and legally Um, available but positively we ought to thank God for the good laws that we have that protect us even though they do not protect our youngest and most vulnerable but when it comes to God's laws there are no bad ones 
They are all perfect. And that is because God is perfect. As the psalmist said, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In Psalm 112 verse 1, it is written, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights delights greatly in his commandments. That is you, if by the grace of God, you are someone who has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are someone, or at least you ought to be someone, who delights in the law of the Lord and in his law you meditate day and night. Don't be, don't be like that Christian whose glib reply to the, the question of Sharia law was, we're under grace. And that was it. I, for one, do not want Sharia law in this land. Why would I want to submit to the law of a wicked religion? I would guess that I'm like the rest, uh, most normal people, most people who are praying that decent, godly laws would be enacted in this land. Laws which mirror God's holy laws. And punishment that fits the crime. Isn't that what we want? All of us. Even as sinners ourselves. This is something that we want. And we thank God for his laws because they are perfect. And we thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world. He came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. In life, he fulfilled the law of God for all, for people who have failed miserably to keep God's laws. And in death, the Lord Jesus Christ, he paid the penalty for sin when he took upon him the sin of all who trust in him. And such people, with the enabling of the Holy Spirit, delight to do the law of God. And in his law, they meditate day and night. May that be each one of us here. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.